This morning we continue in our ordinary series. Uh, This morning uh, we will be looking at something that's really a continuation of what we discussed last week with regard to Christian growth. And today we are looking at the ordinary ordinances of the church. And our keywords for worshipers and training are supper, baptism, and means. Now, if you haven't been with us through our series, we have been considering the ordinariness of the Christian life. We live in a world, and particularly in Christian circles, that seemingly demand of us more and more to live edgy lives and sort of push us in a way to where we begin to feel guilty if we're not parachuting into the middle of Rwanda in a civil war to feed orphans. And if we don't do that, then perhaps we're just not loving Jesus all that much, or we don't love our neighbors. However, all all we've seen along the way is that there are people who might legitimately be called to very unique work, but for most of us, our Christian lives look a lot like living out the things that scriptures call us to that we tend to overlook because they're not that radical. Things like being content in the midst of the mundane details of everyday life. Glorifying God while we wash dishes and clean floors and fill out expense reports. Honoring the Lord while we change diapers and prepare dinner. Pleasing Christ when we interact with others in the midst of a troubled relationship. Praying for our spouse, going to church, serving the church, doing family worship, working hard in our jobs, being good employees, being honest in our transactions. All of these things are what God calls us to with regularity in the scriptures. This is the Christian life. And as we looked at last week, doing all of these things with an eye toward having greater communion with God through the means that he has provided for us to grow as his people because we are united to Christ. Now last Sunday we considered two of the primary means of grace through which we have communion with God. We discussed his word and prayer. In the Word of God, we grow through hearing it preached, first and foremost, and also in our study of the Scriptures and our discussions about the Scriptures. And through through our prayer, God is changing and molding us to be more Christ-like and bringing our individual wills into greater conformity with His will, that we might recognize more and more His work around us. Now remember, we call the Word of God and prayer and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the ordinary means of grace. That's the title we give all of those things combined together. So this morning we're going to consider the two ordinances of the church as ordinary means of grace. I want to remind you what we mean by that. As we looked at last week, we talk about it a lot, but we need to understand what exactly is being articulated. Remember, we said that God has provided for us the specific means that are necessary for us to have true and lasting communion with him. And when we don't utilize those means, that we should have no expectation in our Christian lives that we would have communion with him. 
These means are the things that we call the ordinary means of grace. They are delivery systems that God has instituted to bring spiritual power and spiritual change and spiritual help and spiritual fortitude and spiritual blessings into the lives of his people. This is grace. And so the means of grace come through our Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, in in conjunction with the means that we've been looking at. So the means of grace are God's delivery systems through which grace is distributed to the people of God. Remember, we illustrated it by saying that um, grace is the package that we want delivered to us. And so these means that we are talking about are our UPS or our FedEx being delivering that package of grace into our lives. So I hope you're concluding that growth and perseverance in the Christian life are really impossible without utilizing these means, in particular these four things, the Word of God, primarily through preaching, prayers, and then the two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. They're very ordinary, to say the least. They're very things, though, the very things that God has given us to grow. Not conferences, not family-friendly Christian radio stations, not mission trips, not camps and retreats. All of those things are good and helpful, but they are not the specific means ordained by God for communion with him. Intake of the word of God and prayer and baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the ordinary means, and we must utilize them and partake of them if we are to experience communion with God. So this morning, I want us to look at what God says in his word about the two ordinances of the church. How is it that the Lord's Supper and baptism are means of grace that enhance my communion with God? For some of you, these things have never been much more than a symbol or a sort of ritual remembrance that we go through and they signify something that has happened in the past. But I want to help us to see in God's word, that God is actually doing something through these ordinances. That there is a spiritual element to the Lord's Supper and to baptism which makes them to be effectual means by which grace is brought into a Christian life and it serves to strengthen us and to nourish us and to grow us as we seek to walk in faithful communion with God. In chapter 28 of our Confession of Faith, we have a summary statement about the ordinances. It says this, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. So we want to look at these things individually to understand them. They were instituted by the Lord Jesus. He's commanded us to continue in them until the end. And so we want them to serve us to grow spiritually in Christ. We'll begin with the Lord's Supper. Then we will look at baptism. And we won't be able to cover every aspect of these things. But hopefully with God's help, we'll have a better understanding of them. A better appreciation of them as some of the most important means in our lives. Now... For those of you who are visiting, just a comment on the method this morning. 
We generally look at a passage of scripture and we work through that passage verse by verse. Uh, But because of the broad nature of what we're looking at this morning, we're going to be bouncing around a bit in the text. So please forgive that. Uh, We generally stay put in the Bible in one place, but uh, we need to look around God's word this morning to find other words that have been spoken about it from the Lord. So we'll begin this morning with the Lord's Supper. And I want to look at this under four separate headings. And the first is this. The Lord's Supper, or communion, as it's commonly referred to, is a memorial ordinance. Now many of you will recall, as we work through the Gospel of Luke on Sunday mornings, that the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night of his betrayal by Judas Iscariot. The disciples were gathered together in the upper room. They were sharing the Passover meal with Jesus as he instituted the supper as the meal that his people would have together moving forward. No longer the Passover meal, now the Lord's Supper. Jesus, knowing that he would become in a few short hours the final Passover lamb, did not tell uh, the disciples that again they were going to celebrate Passover, but he said instead, do this, what we are doing right now, do this in remembrance of me. Just like the Passover meal they were celebrating, the Lord's Supper was to take on an element of retrospection, looking backwards to something that had taken place in the past. Now, obviously, the disciples were gathered together before Christ was crucified, so they were looking forward to what was coming. But every time they were going to meet together after that for the Lord's Supper, it was in remembrance of what Christ had done on the cross and instituting the new covenant. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul was sorting out some of the practices revolving around the Lord's Supper. So he gives specific instructions on how it is to be conducted. In retelling the events that night of the institution of the supper, Paul recalls these words of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he's dealing specifically there with the wine, the cup. Pastor uh, Richard Barcelos comments on this. He says, when we take the Lord's Supper, let us never forget that what we are remembering, the just one dying for unjust ones, that he might bring us to the safe presence of God. The Lord's Supper reminds us that redemption has been won for us by Christ, the captain of our salvation who brings many sons to glory. And this is the part of the Lord's Supper that most people understand okay. We are called to the Supper to remember Christ's work on behalf of sinners like us, giving us his body and blood physically as an indicator of what he was going to suffer and take upon himself in the full wrath of God spiritually that we might have everlasting life. And that in itself is a glorious thing for us to remember regularly. The gospel is present in our remembering what Christ has done in the Lord's Supper. But I want us to see that the Lord's Supper is a memorial, but that's not all that it is. 
It's at least a memorial, but it's much more than something we do in memory of Christ's work. The second thing is this. The Lord's Supper is a present communion. Now, sometimes Baptists are a little bit unsure about this, so I want to help us see it in the Bible. So look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we will look at verse 16. This is what we recited in our call to worship this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. Again, the Apostle Paul is dealing with all sorts of issues related to the Lord's Supper in chapters 10 and 11. And here in verse 16, he writes this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? I want you to notice the language that Paul uses here. He says that partaking of the cup and the bread is a participation in the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Now, when we consider that Paul is saying this, we can at the very least acknowledge what he's not saying, namely that the Lord's Supper is only a memorial meal. It's only us remembering what Christ has done. He's pushing it further than that, isn't he? It's helpful here if we consider the context of what he's saying, though. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, Paul is writing at length about food, and specifically food that was being offered up to idols. And in the midst of this discussion, he's dealing with believers who were previously a part of uh, these pagan religious festivals. They sacrificed meat to idols of their own making, and he's outlining for them what life for the Christian looks like over and against those who worship many so-called gods and lords. So Corinth was a city that was sort of this religious melting pot, Old religions and new religions flourished side by side, and oftentimes people were trying to incorporate bits and pieces of other ideas into their worldview uh, so that they could have a sort of buffet of religious ideas. We pick and choose where we would like. So Paul is in the middle of this environment, a very, a very synchristic uh, pagan world, and he's, he's telling all of God's people that the Christian life is a confession of one God and one Lord, which requires exclusive loyalty to God as Father and to Christ as the Lord Jesus. In other words, he's, he's telling the Corinthian church that they cannot be Christians and simultaneously themselves be involved in religious syncretism that surrounds them. It's not possible to be both. So in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul discusses a variety of contexts in which the food was being served and ways that it might be eaten as part of the pagan religious meal. And he gives advice for each circumstance. And then he deals with idolatry. More specifically, he deals with the contemporary idolatry in the context of the Corinthian church. He brings up a lot of things in this chapter, but I want us to focus on this. So flip back to chapter 10 and uh, verse, uh, excuse me, it's just a couple of verses back, verse 14. Now, apparently, some of the Corinthians thought they were free to continue in these pagan practices, these sacrificial meals, but Paul was correcting them, and he told them this, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
He's calling these things idolatry. So he's telling them that their attempts to participate with the pagans in their festivals, in their religious meals, was idolatry, and it should not be practiced or tolerated among them. And this is when he gets to the true nature of the Lord's Supper. So he's contrasting the two. Those are pagan, idolatrous meals, but we have the Lord's Supper. And he deals with that in verse 16. So the point he's making is that participating in this form of idolatry is not acceptable for the Christian. But he goes on to prove his point by contrasting it with the Lord's Supper. Now the ESV translates this uh, word participation. And the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The New American Standard says it's sharing. The King James Version calls it communion. It's a Greek word that many of us have heard before, are probably familiar with, and that word is koinonia. And that means most often translated uh, fellowship. But the idea being expressed by Paul is not simply the experience of our being together in fellowship, But it's more like what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 13. He discusses the fellowship that believers have with the Holy Spirit. Now, we think about that. The Holy Spirit dwells within the believer. It's a very intimate relationship that we have. It's much more intimate and life-changing than just kind of being in one another's presence. And so Paul is experiencing this top-down reality of the Lord's Supper, a reality that's connected to the blood and body of Christ. It's a specific relationship that the believer in Christ has with the blood and body of Christ. So another way we can phrase what Paul is saying in verse 16 is that we have a present communion with Christ derived from or depending on the blood and body of Christ as its source. And so, when we participate together in the Lord's Supper, we're not only receiving something in remembrance of Christ and his sacrifice. We are doing that, but that's not all. We are also enjoying communion with him and with his people. Another way to say that is that we believe that Christ is spiritually present in our partaking of the Lord's Supper. There are benefits to the body and blood of Christ that we enjoy when we take the supper together. We are participating in present communion with the exalted Christ when we are partaking of the supper. Now, I want to be clear on this because I don't want you to falsely think that I am saying we believe in transubstantiation. That is, we do not believe that the wine and the bread turn into the blood and body of Christ. We are not saying that. That is false. I'm saying that we are participating in the present benefits procured, these things that are ours now because Christ has already broken his body and shed his blood for us. His body is no longer broken. It is restored in glory. His blood has finished shedding. And so we summarize in our confession of faith what we receive in the Lord's Supper and participate in the benefits of the cup and the bread. It says the supper serves as a confirmation of the faith. In all of the benefits, our spiritual nourishment and growth in him, our further engagement in and to all duties which we owe to him, and a bond and a pledge of our communion with him and with one another. 
So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are communing with one another, but we are also communing with the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing a meal that is intended to be a blessing to us. It provides strength, it provides nourishment, it provides growth in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a bond and a pledge of our communion with him and all the benefits he's purchased for us. So you see, it's not just a remembrance of our absent friend. It's a present savior who is with us, seeing smelling, tasting, and digesting, and remembering his love and his grace for us. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper has eschatological anticipation, and that's a big fancy word to say it is future-looking. We are looking into the future uh, of what Christ has gained for us in the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, you can flip over to there, verse 26 of chapter 11, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, back in, uh, if you recall, back in Luke chapter 22, verse 16, the Lord Jesus said, For I tell you, I will not eat it until... It is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So when the Lord returns in power and in glory, there will be no more need for the Lord's Supper. We will have everlasting, unending communion with the Lamb. That's really good news. And so since the Lord's Supper itself will no longer exist, we realize that taking of the Lord's Supper here and now is anticipating that future hope. We are looking forward to that. But now, as we partake of it, we're doing two things. First, we are admitting that our hope in this world is connected to a future communing with the Lamb that will never be hindered and it will never be broken. Have you ever thought of that? When we depart from this earth, if we are in Christ, we will forever have unending, unhindered, sinless communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are remembering that. We are hoping in that as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And secondly, we're doing this. We're serving all of us at that point as evangelists. That's what the text says in verse 26 of chapter 11. As often as you eat of this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the very thing that happened in the evening of the final Passover meal. They were proclaiming Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus' death to one another, just as we proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus to one another as we share in the elements of the supper. And so we're hoping in a future that is secured for us through the gospel as we are proclaiming it in the supper. We have everlasting hope in Jesus Christ because of what Christ has accomplished. And we are proclaiming the reality that we are resting in that hope and that others can partake of the blood and body of Christ should they rest in him and all that he has accomplished. And fourthly, on the Lord's Supper, we believe that it is a covenantal meal. Now, in the Old Covenant, 
there were covenantal meals connected to the covenants God was making. But specifically, when we talk about the old covenant, there was a meal connected to the, uh, to the blood uh, that was shed in the presence of God. And so that is the case in the new covenant in Christ. In Exodus 24, the covenant God made with Moses and the Israelites was confirmed in blood that they had entered into a covenantal relationship with God and they ate and drank together. And so in the same way, the Lord's Supper is a covenantal meal. Better stated, it is a covenant renewal meal. We are renewing every time we partake of the Lord's Supper our covenantal relationship with the Lord Jesus. It doesn't bring us into covenant with God. We are already there if we are in Christ but it reminds us that we have a covenant with him through Christ. It's intended to enhance our bonds in that covenant, to strengthen us, to encourage us to walk in faithfulness and to trust in God as the keeper of his covenant. So I hope you're seeing that the Lord's Supper is about more than remembering what Christ has done. It is that, but it is also a communion we share with Christ We share in communion with one another in the present. It points us forward to the hope we have in Christ. And it is a renewal of our covenant with him. A covenant that never wavers, is never broken by him because he has promised it and he is a covenant-keeping God unto a thousand generations. And so all of this serves to grow us as Christians. It's such an ordinary thing, isn't it? Eating and drinking. But it's a powerful thing. It's a thing that God has designed to identify his relationship with us in Jesus Christ. But for us to be partakers of grace through this means, something very important must happen. We must be present to do it. Now, I don't have time to go into the reasons why the Lord's Supper should only be served in the gathering of God's people in corporate worship on the Lord's Day, but suffice it to say that if we're going to benefit from the means of grace, we have to be present to do so, and we must be prepared to do so. And preparation for the Lord's Supper is in itself a very ordinary thing. It's some of what we've talked about in the past. It's ensuring that we come together on the Lord's Day with God's people in the local church, reconciled to one another. Any hostilities between us are are settled so that we can truly come to the table in communion with one another. That doesn't mean we don't have differences or disagreements or even things that need to be discussed and worked out further. But what it does mean is at the very least that we will have done the really hard thing of going to another person if there is an offense and we will clear the air so that we can truly come to the table together reconciled and communing with one another, seeking forgiveness, granting forgiveness, reminding one another that we've covenanted together as a body of Christ to love and serve one another. And in doing so, we cannot walk to the table together in bitterness and hostility. So part of coming to the table is being reconciled toward others within the local church so that we are truly communing with each other. It's not easy It's not glamorous, but it's ordinary. It's an ordinary part of the Christian life. And it's what we're called to do, living at peace with one another, reconciled in all things.
So that's the Lord's Supper. But now what about the ordinance of baptism? Now, it's no secret that as Baptists, we differ with many of our Christian brothers and sisters regarding this ordinance in terms of who should be baptized and why they should be baptized and how they should be baptized. However, what the overwhelming majority of evangelical Christians agree on, for the most part, is that baptism is extremely significant. Indeed, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a viable declaration of the gospel, and it's bound up with the mission of the church. So let's look now at Romans chapter 6. Look at Romans chapter 6. I want us to read verses 3 through 5. Romans 6, beginning in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now here the Apostle Paul gives us an explanation of the significance of what our baptism signifies. As Baptists, one of the reasons we believe a person is first to be a believer in Christ before they are baptized, and secondly, why, they, uh, why we baptize them by full immersion, putting them all the way into the water instead of sprinkling or pouring it on them, is because of what it identifies. Now, Paul is pointing out that in baptism, we are identifying with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. He's illustrating the work of Christ in that one who is brought into new life with Christ has died to the old self and has been brought out of the grave into the newness of life in Jesus Christ. Now, our catechism uh, asks this question, what is baptism? And the answer it gives is this. Baptism is an holy ordinance wherein the washing of water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit signifies our ingrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. Our belonging to him is signified in that. So in other words, what we're saying is that in baptism, we are signifying that we are made to be a part of Christ's body. And in becoming those who are part of Christ's body, we can now partake of the benefits of the covenant of grace, which are the promises that God has given toward his people, which at least includes our salvation from death and judgment. So baptism is a sign of a Christian's membership in the new covenant, or we believe uh, simultaneously the covenant of grace. Now, our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters who baptize infants have different ideas about what they are signifying. But for those who agree uh, with us and us with them on nearly everything else in Christianity, their belief is that baptism serves like circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant. That baptism was a, a seal. But as Baptists, we believe that the Holy Spirit of God is the seal and that baptism is a sign of that seal. 
So we don't see a one-for-one continuity between circumcision and baptism. What we see is that circumcision in the new covenant is the circumcision of the heart that every Christian undergoes. And then baptism is a sign of that seal. But here's the question I want for us to consider, because my intent is not to make any lengthy arguments for believers' baptism. The question for us this morning is, how is it that baptism, like the word of God, and prayer, and the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. This one seems more difficult because baptism is something we partake in once in our Christian life and then it's over. Now, what we're not saying is that baptism is a part of conversion. It's not. But it is a means to strengthen our communion with God. It's a means of grace appointed by God. And like the Lord's Supper, um, except shorter, we'll think of four ways uh, that it is a means of grace. Uh, First, the Lord gives baptism as an ordinance to strengthen and encourage the faith of the believer who is being baptized. It's a sign to the person baptized of the full salvation accomplished in Jesus Christ. We should never think of baptism apart from thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ and our saving union with him. The work of Christ must always take precedence in our minds and our hearts over the ordinance of baptism itself. As the believer joins uh, faith to his baptism, it becomes a means of grace because the Holy Spirit strengthens the believer who is taking hold of Christ, who is proclaiming Christ in Uh, going through the ordinance. Baptism confirms a forgiveness of sin in the heart of the believer because of their faith in Christ. It testifies to the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Jesus. We're being cleansed in the blood of Christ that brings us out of the grave into the newness of life. But again, baptism itself, the waters of baptism, have no power to accomplish forgiveness of sin in themselves or as an atonement, or as a means of appropriating the atonement of Christ to believers. Secondly, baptism serves as a means of grace to believers who witness its administration. As we witness a baptism, now this is something I wish we could witness every single week because of what it signifies. But as we witness baptism... As Christians, we should give thanks to God for the work of redemption being worked out in the life of the one who is being baptized. But we should also reflect on our previous baptism. So it serves to remind us of Christ, and in so doing, it strengthens our faith as those who have previously been baptized in Christ. Thirdly, as the Apostle Paul points out in verse 5 of Romans 6, we shall certainly be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. So baptism is a sign of the believer's future resurrection from the dead in glorification. This encourages the believer. And the Spirit of God rejoices within us as we consider this great reality of the resurrection and the life to come. So in baptism, we are receiving it as a means of grace and being reminded of our future hope because of Christ's resurrection, which has secured our resurrection because we're united to him inseparably. 
And lastly, baptism is more than just a sign because it serves, like the Lord's Supper, to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers who witness it. That's why if you've been baptized here, I've encouraged you to invite your non-believing friends to come and to witness this. It is a proclamation of the gospel to the lost. The ordinance of the Lord's Supper and baptism are both uh, given as evidences of or representations of the gospel. Jesus has died to save sinners, and in dying, he has given his body, he has given his blood to sinners who repent and trust in him for their salvation. And in doing so, he has brought us from death to life, that we would be set free from the consequences of sin and death. We were buried in the grave, and we left behind in the grave the old man, and we have come to the newness of life in Christ. And so our new nature is that of a raised nature with Christ. Now, before we close, I want to say this about our differences with other believers about baptism. In all of our disagreement over this ordinance specifically, we have to never forget what unites us. Most Christians are quite content to acknowledge that Christians should be baptized in obedience to God and that it is a sign of the great gospel realities of our union with Christ and all the glorious benefits of the new covenant blessing. Baptism is related to our incorporation into the church, and most don't disagree with that. We don't disagree that it has no magical powers, but it is by grace alone, through faith alone, and by Christ alone that we are made right with God. But I readily admit that paedo-baptists and believers Baptists these views can't be simultaneously correct. But with that said, we must never lose sight of what unites us. Because in terms of importance, what unites us is of far greater importance than what we understand about the ordinance itself. And what is that? Of course, it is the gospel. Baptism, though it is important, is not the decisive issue. What you believe about baptism and how you are baptized is not the means by which God determines whether or not you are right with him. And so even though we may disagree on some very important points, we need to find our commonality in that which baptism points us to. The glories of Jesus Christ and the full realities of the gospel of sovereign grace. That more than anything must captivate our thinking and our hearts and our churches and our very lives or else all of it is for nothing. We must be settled on the reality that of most importance is that Christ has died to set sinners free and that all who are separated from Christ who repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will live forever and ever in the newness of life that Christ provides, bringing us from death to life that we may forever dwell in communion with him. And so this morning, I hope that God has confirmed in us the importance of the ordinances of the church that all of us have a greater understanding of what the ordinances are and how they function as a means of grace to grow us in our communion with God. Again, as we've been saying all along, there's nothing really radical about these things. They've been practiced in the church for thousands of years now. And while there may be some differences, overall, these two ordinances have been uh, standing since the foundation of the church and their institution by Christ. 
It's amazingly ordinary. And yet, these are what God has prescribed for our growth as believers. And I praise God for the ordinary means of grace, and I hope that you do as well. That you and I, as the body of Christ at Ephesus Church, will look at all of these means with an eye on it as being more important than we've ever thought before. That we will move forward more seriously knowing how we benefit from these things. Sometimes we partake in certain things and we participate in them, not exactly knowing everything that's going on. And sometimes the ordinances can be those sorts of things. So I hope that we can benefit even greater from our understanding, that it will strengthen our faith and our assurance and our hope. And more than anything, brothers and sisters, Is there any doubt that we are loved by God when we consider all that Christ has accomplished for us on our behalf? Let us be partakers of the means of grace, taking in the word of God, praying to God, partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And can we do it with greater affection for Christ because we know the spirit of God is constantly at work to strengthen us and to nourish us and to assure us of our great salvation in Christ alone. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Father, thank you for the instruction that comes by your word. Thank you for reminding us that our Christian lives are not dependent upon living out things beyond the ordinary that you have called us to day by day. Thank you for providing for us very ordinary and yet very effective and necessary means by which we can have greater communion with you as we rejoice in our union with Christ. Father, we pray that you make all of us to be more thankful and more attentive to the word of God, to prayer, to the Lord's Supper, and to baptism. And we pray in all of these things, Lord, that you would use them to strengthen and nourish us, to cause us to walk in greater faithfulness and trust in Christ, and that, above all, we would be reminded in all of these things of the gospel of free and sovereign grace that has set us free from death and the consequences of sin, and has given us the newness of life that we might walk in communion with you, our maker, our sustainer, and our closest and greatest friend. Lord, make us to be a people who seriously and longingly pursue all that you've provided for us, that you might receive greater glory, and that our joy in our communion with you might be greater enhanced. We love you and thank you and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.